President Biden and former President Trump visit the U.S.-Mexico border this week, and the trips underscored the conflicting stories being told about immigration and the border. So both political parties agree the border is broken, but frame the problem in really different terms. Democrats talk about the struggle of asylum seekers who face hostile border agents, application backlogs, and overwhelmed immigration courts. Republicans talk about migrants with a focus on crime, with the need for more screening, fences, and security. Now, lately, those narratives have converged, and CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is here to talk about how and the why of that, though, spoiler alert, it will involve a border state Republican governor. <laughs> Priscilla, welcome to the assignment. Thanks for having me. So I feel like this has been such an issue over the last couple of years that, like, is this mainly your beat, even though you cover the White House? Yes. Fun fact, I started at CNN covering immigration. So I've been in this space for a very long time and seen the evolution. They're like, you're getting promoted. Just kidding. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> the issue will follow me and I embrace it because it is fascinating and nuanced. And where we are today was not on my bingo card in oh, January of 2021. Really? Why? Because we're in a point where the president is embracing these top border security measures that we knew his inner circle and he also felt was important. But we've really moved away from the we need the legalization for DACA recipients and dreamers. And now we're in this split screen where it's who can be the toughest on border. And that wasn't the space that we saw President Biden in a few years ago. That's true. And People are talking about the catalyst to this being basically Texas and the governor there, Greg Abbott. So just for the background, as I understand it, he had Operation Lone Star. And that's basically saying, look, the feds aren't doing their job securing the border. There's too many people trying to cross. And so not only was he going to send out the Texas National Guard, but he was also going to load people on buses and send them to northern the key here is Democratic-led cities. <laughs> Am I getting that story right? That's right. In April of 2022, he launched right into that busing effort, and it caught everyone by surprise because sort of the point from his perspective is to share the burden with Democratic-led cities to make the point against the president's border policies. And there was outrage. Like when it first happened, it was like, this is heartless. Yeah. People were looking at the history and talking about how uh, at one point governors would bus black Americans north, right, during yeah. the kind of pre-civil rights era. But here's what got lost in the conversation is migrants have been released from government custody for years. We just don't have the space. They go through their immigration proceedings. And an immigration judge down the line will decide whether they can stay or whether they have to go. And they have moved to a lot of these cities over the years. But the way that he did it was what was unique. He sent a lot of people with no notice and just dumped them somewhere. And so while these cities knew that migrants would come, Having them come in this way just made it all the more difficult for them to manage. Fast forward to New York Mayor Eric Adams basically getting upset with the White House, getting upset with Biden, um, saying that this is a crisis that could, quote, destroy New York. But there's other cities, too, that are talking about this, right? Oh, Denver, big one, uh, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. All of these cities have been receiving these migrants. I've talked to White House officials about this. They don't have a lot of options and how they can help. But are those cities mad at Abbott and Texas, or are they mad at Biden? Both. 
it started with being mad at Abbott and only being mad at Abbott. And then it sort of evolved to being mad at the president and saying, you're not doing enough to keep people from crossing. And that's why we're dealing with this day in and day out. The White House has tried to help them with their federal resources or by helping find shelter to put migrants in because that's been a big issue. So you're saying that they're not upset with just Abbott. They're also now upset with the administration itself. They are. Abbott wouldn't be able to do what he's doing if people weren't crossing. And so that is where you start to see the argument evolve into, well, now we're also going to be mad at the president for not doing enough. But even so, when you talk to them, they'll always mention that the Texas governor shouldn't be doing this to begin with, right? But Um, the flip side is you have Republicans and conservatives saying, look, you're the one that wanted to be a quote-unquote sanctuary city. You're the one that, you guys are the cities that wanted to say, people can come here, we will protect you, we will embrace you. Why? Now you're dealing with it. But the flip side of that, too, is... Again, migrants went to these cities before. It's the way that this is being done that is so problematic. And I will also note one thing, Adi, in terms of who these people are. We have seen record migration across the hemisphere, people who don't necessarily have ties to the United States. When we saw migrants arrive before, oftentimes they knew someone here. They were going somewhere where they might have a relative or a family friend. And that was kind of how they got their start. But now, for example, in New York City, they had thousands of Venezuelans showing up and they didn't know anyone, right? So they just arrive and then the city has to provide the shelter and the resources. So the mix of the numbers and the demographic made this whole issue that much more difficult to navigate. It's interesting. A few years ago when I was like covering the policy around the collapse of the Venezuelan economy and government, one of the things I thought is like, oh, we should be seeing some people coming to the U.S. And there was a very short conversation, like in Florida, for instance, like, oh, people might come. And I think really it just was like delayed, right? And now all of a sudden we're all kind of shocked that, oh, yeah, remember this economy collapsed and people were in the streets. They were going to go somewhere. Well, and the pandemic worsened everything because what we saw was what we call secondary movement. So Venezuelans had left. They moved into other countries in South America. They were comfortable. They were okay. The economies were chugging along. The pandemic comes and it just throws everything into chaos and these economies start to tank. And so then they just continued moving and they moved up to the U.S.-Mexico border. So that we can't... Never mind like climate issues, right, in Honduras, right, weather and um, hurricanes and things like that. And or even just like a pretty tough government, like what's going on in El Salvador. Yes, but this is bigger than Central America. This is also South Americans. I've met Colombians on the border. I've met Ecuadorians. I've met Peruvians. I mean, these are populations that you wouldn't have met five years ago. I certainly did not meet them under the Trump administration. And if I did, it was a very small number. But the way that the economies and the governments have sort of devolved in some of these countries has influenced the migration and the whole hemisphere. And just so we don't let that go, in the end, what has been the approach specifically, let's say, with Venezuelan migrants? Well, the Biden administration coming under pressure from the New York City mayor to do something as he was getting these buses of mostly Venezuelans to New York City made nearly 
half a million Venezuelans newly eligible for something that's known as temporary protected status. It's a form of humanitarian relief that allows them to reside in the U.S. and obtain a work permit. And that was exactly what New York City wanted. It was, I want these people to be able to stand up on their two feet and they need a work permit to do it. The system was taking too long. And so it almost was this plot twist in this whole Abbott saga. And just so people know how it works, it means they kind of jump the line, so to speak. And this this can it's happen. It's a different with, line. Oh, a different line altogether. It's a different line. Okay, got but it. These it, are your multiple <laughs> airport security lines. Yeah. <laughs> this is why this is a crazy system. But, um, but it felt like a plot twist because I'm not sure that that would have happened if Abbott hadn't put the pressure on New York City, which then put the pressure on the White House. But by all of that happening, you had nearly half a million people now eligible for this status and now obtaining work permits so that they can work and they don't have to be in the shelter system, essentially. But that was a big moment in the immigration space um, for this population of people. Kamala Harris, at one point, was tasked with doing something. Your eyes just closed as I said it. What was the thing she was supposed to be doing? How did it actually play out? Because I don't see her going to the border this week. You have to know how it started to understand where it is now. When the vice president was given the portfolio of addressing root causes, the administration was in rapid response mode. They and were, again, it was root causes, root right? Causes. Not just going to the border, but you... As Democrats like to talk about, there are root causes to migration, and we can somehow do that nation state to nation state and deal with it. Right. And at the time, there was this surge of unaccompanied migrant children who were arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. So there was a scramble to try to solve for that. And, okay, let's look at the root causes. President Biden had this portfolio under former President Barack Obama. So it was, in some respects, an extension of that. Right. Now, she has worked on it internally within the administration, but she's also set up another council that will help her on this issue. And but, it's like, all did she very... ever meet with the other she She went to an inauguration, and she has met with them one-on-one, but it was always doomed to fail. This is an issue that— Why do you think that? Because this is an issue that takes a long time to solve for. And we've always thought about it in Central America, like I was just explaining to you. But it's so much bigger than that now. And we wouldn't see the effects of it for another five or 10 years. And so she was never put in a position where she could show a result right off the bat. Right. And took a lot of hits for that in the conservative press. Yeah, she was called the border czar, even though the idea of the portfolio was not necessarily for her to respond to the border. That's the Homeland Security And also czar often implies power of some kind. I don't don't know if it was totally clear that she had any particular power, so to speak, even in those rooms to say, well, we're going to do X or Y. Well, because she wasn't in the operational space. The idea was the 30,000 foot view. Let's look at what is causing people to leave. But... In the end, the administration has been in the rapid response. How do we respond to the issue that is coming at the border right now? I'm here talking with CNN's Priscilla Alvarez about immigration, the border, the White House, and the politics of all of it. We'll be back in a moment. 
We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. New Year, same phone addiction? Break the cycle of Sunday's lost to doom scrolling on Elon Musk's haunted Twitter by tuning into Crooked Media's weekly podcast, Offline with me, John Favreau. Offline is a different kind of Sunday show, a chance to step outside our social media-fueled news cycles and hear smarter, lighter conversations about how our chronically online existence shapes the ways we live, work, and interact with the world around us. Join us each week for intimate conversations with notable guests like Stephen Colbert, Hassan Piker, ContraPoints, and Margaret Atwood. Together, we'll figure out how to live healthier, happier lives, both on and offline. So put down your screens, grab your headphones, and listen to new episodes of Offline with John Favreau every Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. We are here with Priscilla Alvarez, and we are talking more about immigration policy. Now, Just a few days ago, Abbott's office in Texas put out this press release that's saying since the launch of this Operation Lone Star, they've made over half a million apprehensions, right, going after people, 40,000 arrests, and sent over 100,000 people to these cities, New York, Los Angeles, D.C., etc. Has he talked about this basically as a political win? Yes. This is something that he has leaned into and made only about being an affront to the Biden administration. So, like, look at this, we made them understand, or look at this, we made this their problem? Look at the mess the Biden administration is creating, and look how we're trying to solve for it. And now we are going to bring this right to your doorstep so that you can deal with it, too. And he has escalated that, I mean, over and over. I've been covering his operation since the very beginning. I actually went down in 2022 to talk to some of the members of the National Guard who were involved. This was, what, two years ago? Mm -hmm. I was there, and they were already sharing with me this concern about this being overtly political and struggling with that, frankly. Yeah, Um, because my next question after political is, did it work logistically? Like, did they actually change things at the border. I talked to Border Patrol agents about this a lot. The National Guard, the state National Guard has been there. They they lend sort of eyes and ears on the ground. So if they see there's a crossing happening, they can alert Border Patrol. But the National Guard can't enforce immigration law. So they can't arrest a migrant. That's what Border Patrol can do. And so what happened in this scenario is it made it so political that some of those relationships that people had built for years started to fracture. DPS started to get in the way of Border Patrol operations in a way that they had never seen before. So the Texas governor will say, it worked. We have made it so much harder to cross the Texas-Mexico border, to which I would remind listeners that his border has seen some of the most overwhelming surges, despite all of these. I feel like there are whisper networks of uh, of migrants, not even whisper, right, WhatsApp, et cetera, that's like, now's a good time to come. Now's not a good time to come, right? The smugglers are saying, now's a good time to come. Now's not a good time to come. And those don't always align with, like, the political reality of what's happening here. But I would think if you heard, if you make it, you're getting a bus ticket to New York, you're like, great. 
Yeah. I mean, that was one of the messages that was being sent out because you did get a bus ticket to one of the Democratic-led cities. But people were going to cross either way, too. I mean, that's been the yeah. reality along the border. And so the resources that he put down there and the reason some of the people I was talking to in the federal side and the state side was that it's not that it bolstered enforcement in any kind of way that would keep people from crossing. I mean, he put down razor wire and people were still crossing and they were just crossing with injuries. Or a woman and two children died knowing that there was that wire anyways. And so that that's where, despite this talk, people are going to cross anyways. And there are smugglers who make a lot of money off of this too. In what ways did you see the Biden administration hold on to old policies from the Trump era or do things that were misaligned with what Biden promised, right, in in his campaign rhetoric? Because the whole thing was like, I'm going to be different. I'm not going to talk about family separations. It was like, this Democrat is coming and he's going to be different on immigration. What? How's it actually played out? I do want to note that the Trump administration really changed the immigrant advocacy movement and also where Democrats were on this issue. The way that he took border enforcement to this extreme Mm -hmm. by separating families, it made Democrats and people in the advocacy community just so afraid of anything that had to do with border enforcement. I mean, it just they equated it like a border wall with this idea of separating families. And so when the president came in, that's what he was coming into. It was a Democratic Party that had just been sort of traumatized by what they had seen under the Trump administration. What was possible. What was possible. And so he came in and he basically did away with all of the Trump administration policies. And it's interesting because I've talked to some of the people that have left since then, have left the Biden administration, and some of them regret that. Like some of them think this is not about family separation, but just about other immigration policies. They, They think, well, maybe we should have thought through it a little more. But there was such a feeling of we can't do anything that is at all an extension of Trump or a repeat of Trump. And then here we are, fast forward, and some of those ideas are coming back to life. Oh, like which ones? Well, like the executive action that we've reported on that they're considering that would limit the ability of migrants to seek asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border if they crossed illegally. The way people talk about that, you just said it in the most reporter way possible. The way people talk about that is Biden is now considering shutting down the border. Well, you can't actually shut down the border, like, to be clear. Okay. But we're <laughs> um, helping people make but, that, like, how does that headline yeah. happen out of what you just said? Yeah. Well, it's a departure from decades-long protocol. So it's a restriction that we just haven't seen before. But the authority that he's considering using is the one that the former president also used. He tried to shut it off entirely. Here, it's like, are there loopholes? Are there exceptions to the authority? But the point is... These tougher measures are really coming back to life in a way that if you had told people in the White House would come back to life in 2021, I'm not sure they would have seen it come to this degree. What else strikes you about how the Biden White House has been handling the border in general, like where they put the emphasis, where they ask for funding, where they ask for certain bills or proposals? Like what do they seem focused on? Well, they were focused for a long time on that Senate border deal. I mean, that took up a lot of work from White House officials and the Department of Homeland Security and trying to find a compromise with Republicans. I mean, that was months. Of and we should going say that's the deal forth. that was ended up being a poison pill to an overall bill that would have done Ukraine funding and some other things. 
House Republicans said, look, we're not doing anything unless you deal with the border. And that is what yielded this attempt. And they tried, right. I mean, in the Senate, So you're saying they they really took it seriously. They really took it seriously. They really wanted to find this compromise because Ukraine funding, Israel funding, was also on the line, right? This wasn't just about border security. It died. It, It didn't go anywhere. But it ended up being the pivotal moment because I'm not sure we would be here today talking about the president going to the border on... Thursday if that bill hadn't failed because of Republicans. It gives the White House something to seize on and try to flip the script on Republicans and take what has been a political liability and try to use it to the president's advantage. Whereas we've spent the last three years with them mostly trying to keep this issue at a distance. They were working on it. The Department of Homeland Security was certainly working on it. But it wasn't something that you heard about much in the briefing room. And now the president, all the remarks I've seen in recent days, he's mentioned this. Insofar as when they gathered the governors on Friday, last Friday, for their annual meeting, the border deal was on every table. That governors were seated at. So, right. the so next White to their House rubber really chicken is like the packet that's yep. like flip through the talking <laughs> points of this bill while you are, frankly, upset about yeah. it. Cause, Riveting stuff. Well, also National Governors Association, correct me if I'm wrong, is pretty Republican leaning, like as an association. So he's not exactly walking into a room of people who are like excited about that deal. No, but he's making the point. Look what you could have had. And frankly, there are measures in there that under different circumstances probably would have left. We've talked about this before, but I do want to underscore what the former president says he wants to do if he gets another term. And and I can do some of this work for us because they've talked about expanding this form of removal that doesn't require due process. They've talked about reassigning federal agents, deputizing local police, National Guard, as we heard about in Texas, to help ICE do mass deportations. You've got to then build huge camps to detain people while their cases are being processed. And if Congress fights you, the former president wants to basically like redirect military funds to this effort. So it's almost like taking what we saw with the wall and putting that kind of on steroids. But it didn't go well for the wall because it got stopped in courts. This time, don't you think they're smarter about courts? Well, they could be. There could be people... And probably are people who are studying it. But the reality was, in the first time around, was that there were legal challenges that they had to navigate. And there were courts that blocked what they tried to do. You can always get savvier about your argument in court, but it could still stop you in the interim, right? I mean, that was the thing with the border wall, is while something was being litigated, you couldn't move the funds to build that part of the wall. And really, all of the ideas that have been floated in the immigration space by the Trump campaign and Trump circles is ultimately a resource issue. It all comes down to how do you get the money, the personnel, the ability to do what he wants to pull off? Because it's not that these ideas didn't exist before. It's just that they were very difficult to execute on. And resources was a huge impediment for them. Because, you know, during the primary, you heard candidates talking about using drones, you know what I mean, to like... I don't know what attack Mexico, like some really nutty things started to come up and it sort of gave me a sense of just how far people think. And foreign policy is a big part of this in a way people don't always think about, right? I mean, you can build a big detention camp. Sure, you can get the money sorted out. You can get the planes to deport. 
But the countries you're deporting to have to be willing to take back their nationalities. And they're not always willing to do that. So there is a level of foreign policy that's really important here. You could argue that the former president was pretty aggressive with allies, foreign partners. Right. Hence um, the remain in Mexico policy, right. for example, exactly. right? where Mexico helps to process, be a stopping off point. But the numbers that they're floating that this would mean is something that would take a lot of talking with a lot of different countries. This isn't just Mexico anymore. I mean, you're talking to Colombia. You're going to talking to Venezuela. I mean, there's like a whole other set of issues here. So you can get the resources, but you also have to have the relationships to send them back. The other thing that's happened is the conversation around migrants as some sort of source of crime, major source of crime, has really blown up. I mean, a a great example right now is the death of this student in Georgia. And there's a lot of seizing on crimes by undocumented migrants. What do you actually know in terms of data? What do you know in terms of, like, reality? Well, undocumented immigrants are usually the victims of crimes more than they are the perpetrators of crime. There are these instances that obviously have come up, especially in recent days, where They are the perpetrators of crime. And it becomes concerning to those in sort of the immigrant community because it criminalizes an entire population of people when most of what we've seen through data and anecdotes is, again, that these populations often end up being the victims of crime for in labor, for example, being exploited, et cetera. Yeah. But it, it occurs to me that Democrats end up in the same problem they're in with crime itself, which is you're trying right. to explain it away. You're like, no, no, look at this chart. This chart says that it's fine. And someone's like, yeah, but uh, everyone got carjacked and I saw it on the news. And like, what are you talking about? You got to take this seriously. Yeah. That's their fight. That's the Democratic fight, right? And crime and immigration. And this is where the issue of immigration for Republicans becomes a winning one because it's not just about the handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. It's about the people crossing. And then it's all tied up in one big package. And it's hard. It's like, what do they call it? Gordian knot. Right. In the meantime, you know, it's funny. I feel like Biden, more than anyone would know, he's, he's probably seen so many failed immigration deals just having been a senator. And this is just me doing newsroom talk now, but do you feel like there's not anymore a real constituency for immigrant rights? Meaning you have hardcore activists, but it is not, to my mind, a litmus test issue for people. The closest it came was the separation of of families where people saw kids pulled from their families. But it's like I just don't encounter that many people who are like, this is the most important thing to me. But I think the reason for that is because if you think about the separation of families, regardless of your background, you understood that, right? You understood a parent and a child being separated. Immigrant rights, you almost have to have some sort of tie or understanding of immigrants and immigration. If you don't have that in your background, Or for businesses, for example, they can also think about it through a lot of different legal immigration visas where they need those workers to come from abroad. They can think about it in sort of the business community aspect, and they still do. But I think the separation of families, it simplified it because you understood what it was like, again, to be a family unit and to be separated from that unit in a way that immigration is so nuanced. There's so many different parts to it, that unless you have some connection to it, 
why would you think about it twice? Yeah. I mean, I'm an immigrant and I definitely, you know, full disclosure, like my family came in the 80s. So you're kind of in that period where like a Reagan is granting amnesty. Right. And I remember when my parents got their citizenship, I was naturalized and it was such a big deal. It was such a big deal. And like my mom's office gave her a cake. It just felt very like America, you're in America. This is great. Now I kind of feel like with that, you know, like are people do people still believe in this as a country where migrants are welcome, asylum seekers specifically are welcome because that's what sentence caps we do. Like that feels over. Like the Statue of Liberty is like just a statue. It depends, right? It's give me. Yeah, you're tired, you're poor. Now we're like, give us your skilled software engineers, but not too long. Also, can you fill out this form? Asylum seekers. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it it has become more complicated. I mean, my family is from Argentina. They immigrated from there, they came here, and there's, and I think to your point, this also touches on something else. We generalize the immigrant community. I have talked to immigrants who do not agree with what's happening on the U.S.-Mexico border. Yes, and that should not I hear be those voices all the time that are yeah. like, there's a way to come here, and these people aren't doing it the right way, and a kind of lack of sympathy sometimes. Absolutely. And that is very real. And I will also note when we talk about the immigration system and it being broken, it goes beyond the border, right? I mean, when you talk to lawmakers, when you talk to people in this space, it's, well, shouldn't we have a way for those who are seeking work to actually come here and and make it a little easier for them to come here, right? Because I have been on the border. I've talked to some of those people. Some of them aren't really seeking asylum. They're coming to work, right? But they're saying that they're coming for asylum. And that's where this all gets very complicated. And our system's too under-resourced to parse that out anyway, right? Like immigration courts, judges, asylum. Right. And then in talking to people on the Hill, you know, shouldn't there be visas or shouldn't we set up the system in a way where someone could come for work and then go back or what have you, but not the way that it is now where everything is conflated as asylum. I don't want to leave on a down note. So can you give me two or three policies that actually, if there was a political will, there would be political consensus? It comes back to the visas, immigrant visas. We talk about immigration. We focus so much on the U.S.-Mexico border and the people crossing the border. But there are people who are coming through a multiple different types of visas to work in the United States, to teach in the United States, to serve in the healthcare system. And they're all very important. It's just very hard to do that. And I think in having conversations, again, with people on the Hill, it's, is there a way where that can become easier so that if people do want to come here and they are benefiting the economy, they have that opportunity? And, that's, and that the U.S. would benefit from that skills. But we get so focused on migration as a problem, migration as a crisis, that it doesn't leave room for that conversation when in reality that bigger conversation could probably have more benefit in the long run. Split screen, Donald Trump. President Biden, both at the border. What do you listen for as a beat reporter? I listen to how they're framing it. But, I mean, you have the former president who will blame it all on Biden and his policies and call it an open border. And then you have the president saying, I could have done X, Y, and Z, but the Republicans didn't let me. And then I listen as a beat reporter. Inevitably, I have to listen to what policies they're throwing out. Oftentimes, it's a lot of rhetoric with not a lot of substance, which is perhaps not surprising covering 
politics. This was supposed to be my upbeat question. This was your, <laughs> this is not an upbeat question. <laughs> but the fact that the two of them are going to be on the U.S.-Mexico border is remarkable. It's not something that I would have expected in January 2021 because the White House just this wasn't an issue they wanted to touch on. It's not a winning one for them. And now they're trying to turn it into that. Well, Priscilla, I'm glad you're on the beat. No, this you. was really fun. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Priscilla Alvarez is a White House reporter for CNN. And that's it for today's episode of The Assignment. We, of course, will be back with a new episode on Thursday. And I have a request for you because we're going to be interviewing some election officials. So what have you always wanted to know about how elections are run? Is there anything you want to tell them? We're going to be asking them about what it's been like doing this job in this very conspiratorial moment in American politics. Give us a call. Let us know what's on your mind. The number is 202-854-8802. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Dan Bloom. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Dan DeZula is our technical director, and Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. We got support from Haley Thomas, Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dianora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andrus, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namorow. Thanks, as always, to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish. Thank you for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details.